He's been telling the truth about the massacres for a long time. There have been no prosecutions. One week ago, Epoch Times reporter Luca Biniat was arrested in Nigeria following his reporting on a massacre of 38 people. He has since been charged with cyberstalking under the cybercrime law, a statute that experts say is used to squelch freedom of expression. They charged the man in a court that doesn't have authority to give him cash bail. So now he's in the Kaduna prison, which is a very awful place to be. Today we sit down with the Epoch Times Africa desk editor, Douglas Burton, to understand what's happening on the ground in Nigeria. It seemed like it was a graveyard because so many people had been killed. If you step back and look at the big picture, there is a war against Christians. This is American Thought Leaders, and I'm Yanya Kelleck. Before we start, I wanted to take a moment to tell you about our sponsor, American Hartford Gold. As you may have heard, American Thought Leaders was demonetized by YouTube, and after many months, their rather opaque appeals process has really led nowhere. Yet there are still companies like American Hartford Gold that value freedom of speech and honest discourse, and are sponsoring shows like ours. With inflation on the rise, investing in gold is another option to diversify your assets. American Hartford Gold is a patriotic, family-owned company that not only sells precious metals right to your front door, they can help you deposit gold into a retirement account, like an IRA or a 401k. They've got an a rating with the Better Business Bureau, and right now they have a promotion where they will give you up to $1,500 of free silver on your first order. You can just call 855-862-3377. That's 855-862-3377. Or you can text AMERICAN to 65532. Thank you, American Hartford Gold, for sponsoring American Thought Leaders. Doug Burton, such a pleasure to have you on American Thought Leaders. Same here, Young. Doug, we have a pretty difficult situation right now. Uh, one of the Epoch Times reporters in Nigeria uh, has been jailed. Um, Luca Biniat. I want to make sure I'm saying his name right. Correct. So why don't you just give us a rundown of, of what's going on? We're, we'll drill into all sorts of details momentarily. Right, Jan. Well, Luca Biniat is one of five reporters in central Nigeria that I've been mentoring for a few months. I started working as a reporter for Epic Times in February of this year. And I told my editor that I work with a group of reporters on the ground who give me eyewitness testimony and connect me to witnesses. So uh, a very, he was a very helpful, the most helpful editor I've ever worked with at Stephen Gregory. So he said, sure, go ahead. So since then, I have been helping these reporters, some of whom are citizen journalists, but Luca Biniat is a professional journalist. He's been a regular reporter for well-known newspapers for more than 25 years. So I started working with Luca, I think around May or June of this year. Luca is about 52 years old. He's got uh, family, adult children, and he's from southeast Kaduna, where it's just a, a battleground. It's a killing zone where there's ongoing conflicts between his tribe, a really big one called the Atyap people, and the, the so-called herdsmen, who are principally the Fulani tribesmen. And Luca has been doing uh, cutting-edge reporting, of factual reporting, of what's been going on at the, in the massacres in Kaduna. So that's how I was attracted to him. And uh, he's gotten himself in jail because he's been telling the truth, but also too much truth. So let's, let's start here, okay? 
What exactly is this group of reporters that you're working with as our uh, Africa Desk editor now? What exactly are they reporting on? They're reporting on massacres of unarmed people in the middle belt of Nigeria, but principally two states, Kaduna, which is the third largest state, and also the neighboring state of Plateau. And since 2015, there has been an escalation of massacres in these two states, but there have been attacks by radicalized Muslims in about 12 states in Nigeria. And so let, let's, let's understand the bigger picture of this particular, let, we'll call it a conflict. You're saying massacres are occurring. What, what exactly is going on? What's, what does the evidence tell us? Yeah, it's a, it seems to be a complex situation because Nigeria is a big, big country. I mean, it, it's got more than 218 million people. Uh, it is the largest and richest country in Africa, and it's the dominant country in West Africa. So many people have heard that there's a war there or there's an insurgency called uh, Boko Haram, which, which means Western learning is forbidden. And Boko Haram tr uh, tried to affiliate itself with the Islamic State uh, early on, I think in 2014-2015. But since then, uh, Boko Haram has been absorbed into an ascendant Islamic group called the Islamic State of West Africa. And that conflict has been pretty well covered. The government has been fighting a war and it has made a lot of progress in pushing the Islamic State of West Africa into a corner in northeast Nigeria. But much less well covered is a, a kind of other insurgency which involves nomadic peoples or semi-nomadic peoples associated with the Fulani ethnicity. Since 2000, well, 2010, but increasingly since 2015, there have been attacks on rural villages and sometimes 30, 40, 50, or 100 people will be murdered in these attacks which involve raising the village. They are nighttime attacks by armed militia or we may say mercenaries. That is what my group has covered the most. These marauding attacks which are apparently attend attempts to cleanse the area of farmers and to, over and to take over the land for grazing for the cattle herds that these nomadic people have. Well, so exactly. So this is one of the stories, as I understand, or one of the explanations as to why this is happening is precisely what you described, that it's a matter of, you know, basically picking up a land, so to speak. But you're yes. saying there's, a, there's this religious dimension. Well, there is a religious dimension, but there's also a economic dimension. If you go to the website of the, you know, U.S. mission in Abuja, or if you, if you go to the websites of the experts like the crisis group, uh, International Crisis Group, or if you go to Human Rights Watch, you'll find detailed reports which tell about the conflict between peoples, herding peoples and farming peoples. And their view is that the root cause of this conflict is global warming. They will tell you that the, the herding peoples are in a fight over scarce resources with the residential farmers. And of course, that's partly true. There is global warming all over the Sahel in uh, Africa. However, there's also a sectarian dimension. It's not just a fight over resources. There's the fact that the people who are generally doing the attacks are radicalized jihadists. And the Fulani ethnicity, of which President Muhammadu Buhari is the leading member, it happens to be very proud of its, its uh, devout Islamism. And the, there is a subsect, um, we have to make it clear, there is a minority of people in this ethnicity 
who believe that their way to preserve their faith and to claim the land of Nigeria is through warfare and through terrorism. But that's not true of the whole ethnicity, but that's what's happening. There are thousands of bandit gangs in the middle belt of Nigeria. There's all kinds of crime going on. There's kidnapping everywhere. But many of the bandit gangs, which are uh, also apparently doing the raising of villages, they happen to be dominated by Fulani people. So it's hard for the, you know, an outsider to grasp what's really going on here. Nigeria has been known to have all kinds of violence, tribal warfare. Uh, there's been banditry in the south of Nigeria for more than 20 years. There's a separatist movement that seeks to, in the south, southeast of Nigeria, that seeks to claim territory for a, a, a new country called Biafra. And they, those folks are survivors of the Biafra genocide that goes back between 1967 and 1970. So Nigeria is kind of hard to understand. It's, uh, it's got, well, hundreds of ethnicities, many different languages. But if you, if you step back and look at the big picture, then certain things become clear even to an outsider like myself who's just looking at the facts and talking to the victims. And that is that there is a war against Christians. And although there are communal clashes, there, there are tribal conflicts, they go on in many places, but the preponderance of the attacks are in the middle belt, are done by these bandit gangs or these terrorists who are seeking to drive out the resident farmers. And you're saying that the resident farmers are predominantly Christian? Yes, in most cases. In the Middle Belt, for example, especially in southern Kaduna, which is a majority Christian area, uh, or in the state of, uh, in northern Plateau. Plateau is a majority Christian state, although just barely. It's mixed. Kaduna is a Muslim state, and there's a very large majority of Muslim people in the northern part of the state. Uh, Luka is from the south, which uh, is mixed, both Muslims and Christians, but majority of the Christians are living in the south area. So what we're seeing is a, a rivalry and a competition and a kind of uh, civil war between ethnicities. Uh, well, not ethnicities necessarily, but it's between religions. It's Muslim, radicalized Muslims and Christian people. The complexity is that not all the Muslims are intolerant. Not all the, the Muslim people are turning into terrorism, not at all. There are many Fulani people who are actually Christians. Uh, we've done stories about them in the Epic Times. And many Fulani people have come to the aid and saved the lives of Christians. They're, they're amazing people, they're great people. Many uh, heads of government in West Africa are from the Fulani ethnicity. But when you look at the testimonies of the victims uh, in many states, and we've done stories over a wide area from the north central part of Nigeria to the far eastern part, you see a similarity of, of travail, a similarity of testimonies. People say, these people, these came at night, or they came after midnight, and when they came into our village, they were armed, they were wearing dark clothes, they were wearing masks, and they were shouting, Allahu Akbar, which means God is great. From what I understand, the, the sort of the government position on this, roughly, is that there is this kind of, I guess you would call it sectarian or religious violence, but it kind of goes in both directions. Like sometimes the, the Muslim extremists will attack the Christians, and then the Christian extremists will attack the, the Muslims back. Yeah, that's true, and that's part of the complexity of it. It is a fact that there has been sectarian fighting in the north-central states. For example, there were terrible 
sectarian riots in Jos. It's a metropolis in the, in the capital of Plateau State. There were terrible riots, and I think about 2,000 people were killed in riots in Jos in 2001, pretty much coinciding with the same time that the United States was attacked in 9-11. And there were riots and uh, internecine fighting in Kaduna State uh, in 2010 and 2011, which was an election year. And the fighting between Muslims and Christians was very probably related to the presidential campaigns of the two parties, one of which was led by a Christian man, Good Luck Jonathan, who won the presidency in 2011, and his opponents were Muslims. So yeah, there is that aspect of it. There have been massacres of Muslims. They've been well recorded by Human Rights Watch. But here's the thing. If you look at the big picture, the preponderance of attacks have not been Christians against Muslims. In general, the residential farmers, the Christians, they're unarmed. Why? Because Nigeria has had a very vigorous and strictly controlled gun control law. They prevent people from getting acquiring weapons. In fact, the police will arrest any person with a gun of any kind unless they have a license as a hunter. Uh, they even arrest people who have self-defense weapons like machetes in their, in their houses. But on the other hand, the people who are doing these attacks, the Fulani herdsmen, they carry AK-47 rifles and they are never disarmed. And all of the bandit gangs are carrying these automatic weapons. They even carry, they have rocket-propelled rocket grenade launchers. They have heavy weapons. And the government uh, never arrests them. I mean, they do some interdiction of the bandits. They have bombed them in the northwestern states. There have been recent bombing raids against uh, the bandit gangs in Niger State, which is the far northwest. So far as I know, they haven't done any bombing raids in Kaduna, where there are the most massacres, and none that I know of in Plateau. So the government's approach to these bandit gangs is very odd. It's very mysterious, because clearly that's the worst terrorism in the country and the government doesn't have an explanation as to why it's not enforcing the law. So how many massacres are we talking about here? How many people? I mean, I, I don't, I, I don't want to just turn it into numbers, but I just want to understand the scale of, of this. There is media consensus, uh, a very broad consensus, including uh, the Council on Foreign Relations and, and their, their murder tracking report, their t terrorism tracking report, that since 2010, at least 60,000 people have been killed by the insurgency or the terrorism done by these bandit groups. But if you talk to other sources, like uh, one of our sources is an Anglican priest, his name is Hassan John in Joss. He keeps another set of records and he says that most of these attacks on villages in rural areas are not even reported. And the casualties reported by the government, like police in, in Nigeria and the army, they're they're underreported. They, the numbers are far lower than they should be. And uh, Reverend John says the real number of people who've been killed is close to 500,000. That's, I mean, that's hard to fathom. It really is. Uh, and, uh, but the, I think recently there was a UN agency, the uh, International Office on Migration reported that as many as, uh, it was an incredible number, hundreds of thousands of children have been killed in Nigeria since 2010, and especially in the Northeast section. So many of the deaths that are related to these attacks, and I'm, I'm, we're talking about the total number, the total picture, both the ISIS insurgency, 
And by the way, there's other insurgencies. There's an Al-Qaeda group in the Northwest, so it's, it's not just the Islamic State of West Africa. And combine that with the attacks by the kidnap gangs and the, the groups that are paid to raise villages. If you combine them together, it's a very large number. Uh, and not only, it's a huge cost economically too. The banditry, that the, and especially the kidnapping industry in Nigeria is really hard to, to grasp because billions of dollars are going into ransoms to these bandit gangs. The bandit gangs are rarely, rarely captured. They're rarely stopped. There are reports that the, well, the police know where these bandit gangs are. And by the way, there's thousands of them. Uh, we, we know this from the reports of the Muslim mediators like Sheikh Gumi, who's based in uh, Kaduna, he, he tells us himself huh, that there are thousands of gangs in the northern states and they are bankrupting the churches. Uh, many of the ransoms are, you know, ransoms of people who are of modest income, you know, pastors of little churches. And the average, according to the International Committee on Nigeria, the average ransom in Nigeria is about $10,000. But that is like a so-called king's ransom for these people. You know, most people in Nigeria, in the Middle Belt, they live on less than $1,000 a year. This is a really large-scale uh, thing that I think, you know, a lot of the world just simply isn't, isn't aware of, right? So let's go back to Luca now. Um, so Luca is specifically looking at individual examples of these massacres and reporting on them, among other things. Well, Luca is a, he's a professional. And according to the reports of his fellow journalist in Kaduna, he's fearless. And, and he's been telling the truth about the massacres for a long time, partly because his tribe is, one, is on the front line of being genocided in southeast Nigeria. His tribe uh, suffered these, suffered these, suffers these attacks on a regular basis. Luca is a Roman Catholic guy. I don't know him that well. I know he's in his early 50s. He's uh, got grown children. And Luca just tells it the way it is. So he was put in jail four years ago. Now he was charged with breach of the peace and with defamation of the governor and other officials. And that case was never resolved. But Luca was in uh, jail or prison for about four months. It's very, you know, terrible. It's a, a hard thing to endure. More recently, what got him into trouble is that, and I'm partly to blame because I edit Luca's stories. Luca did a a story that was published October 29th about a massacre of 38 people in a little village or town called Maidamai in southern Kaduna. And then uh, Luca did a very complete story. He was there at the mass burial of the people. And he took statements of the state security uh, commissioner. And then a month later, we, we published his story a little bit belatedly. And in the story, he points out that there have been no arrests. Well, there have been no prosecutions. Uh, 38 people were killed. If that had, been hap if that had happened in the United States, that would have been, there would have been wall-to-wall -wall coverage. But in Nigeria, it's actually not that much of a big deal. So Luca printed that and he pointed out and he quoted exactly verbatim what the state commissioner of security said. His name is Mr. Erewhon, so Samuel Erewhon, he said that unfortunately there had been clashes in the state. He was looking into everything and he was going to catch the culprits. Well, what wounded him is that Luca in the story pointed out that there weren't any clashes. He quoted a state, a senator, Mr. Law, who said, there's no clashes 
If there was clashes, why aren't there any Muslim casualties? There are no Muslim deaths, it's just Christian deaths. That's true. So what he pointed out is that the government's using a false narrative. And what Mr. Erwan said is not unusual. That is the conventional narrative that has been given by public officials for a decade. And it's actually repeated, it's uh, promulgated by the fake news media, or I would say it's the media that has been intimidated by the government to use euphemisms and Orwellian language, uh, like not identifying who the killers are. So Luca told the truth. And I think he stung the officials who have come back to him and he's been jailed uh, for, for the crime of cyber stalking. And that's why he was arrested last Thursday. And then he was, he had a court appearance yesterday and then today, second court appearance and the judge has uh, ordered him to be moved from a police jail into the prison in Kaduna. So Luca quoted the senator, but the senator disputes that he said these things. Correct. Yeah, now the senator has said uh, in a statement from his lawyers, he didn't say it. He's backed off completely. Now, the senator's a Christian. According to some sources, he's been intimidated to say this because he stands to lose a lot if the whole weight of the government comes down on him. You rarely see these stories in Nigerian media. Usually, government officials, they, they say nonsense or they, they speak in a very vague, polite, genteel way. And the people who object to their stories also use uh, indirect language. But Luca's story is not indirect. My friends have told me that they think the senator may have been intimidated. We don't know. He's not taking any media calls. Uh, neither is Mr. Samuel Erewhon. And of course, I've been contacting uh, Mr. Erewhon myself. I, I have a channel to him. He hasn't responded to any of the calls. So he's stonewalling me. We don't know why. This is the problem uh, of this is the problem of the so-called genocide against Christians in Nigeria. No one can really understand it in the West because the Nigerian media themselves don't re fairly report it. Very, very difficult situation. And actually, you know, so you mentioned today, so we're recording on Wednesday, we're going to publish this interview on Thursday. So, you know, a week after his arrest, you did get some updates. So if you could give us, tell us what the, what the current situation is for Luca. Well, the court hearing began yesterday and Luca Binyat was charged with cyber stalking, which means that you've published something online or electronically that the target of your communication may take to be intimidating or a threat of some kind. So Mr. Samuel Erewhon apparently filed a complaint or he wrote a letter uh, to some uh, police agency and that resulted in the arrest and the charge with cyber stalking, which is a controversial statute, uh, as the article in Epic Times points out. I mean, cyber stalking is apparently, uh, you know, a, a medium for restraining speech instead of punishing people for saying something that's politically incorrect. So Mr. Biniot was charged with cyber stalking, which is a federal crime, but he was charged in a magistrate's court that doesn't have authority uh, to rule on that because it, 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 you know, it's, it's a lower ranking court. So Luca's case has to be moved to a federal court. In the meantime, he will stay in detention. He can't get cash bail from the magistrate because the magistrate doesn't have authority over that crime. And some of our sources have told us that they think that was the intention of the government to begin with. 
they charge the man in a court that doesn't have authority to give him cash bail. So he has to go to another facility. So now he's in the Kaduna prison, which is a very awful place to be. And we don't know how many days or weeks it will take to get his case heard in the federal court. Now, there are cases of other journalists I've worked with, like Mr. Stephen Kefis, who was charged with cyber stalking in 2019. He had the same problem. Got charged in a lower court, couldn't get cash bail in the federal court, and actually the judge in that case wouldn't give an explanation. Or they gave they they gave odd they gave odd explanations that he was being considered for some other charge or whatever. Well, Stephen Kefis was in, in prison for five months, and during that time, his health deteriorated. I spoke to Stephen Kefis just a few days ago. He says, well, now I've got hepatitis C. When I got out of the prison, I had malaria, typhoid. It's hard for the people to endure this imprisonment. So some people believe that Luca's being just kept He's just being uh, stashed into a prison. But other people, like his assistant, who's taken over his job at the Southern Kaduna uh, People's Union, she's more op- optimistic. She think- thinks that the lawyer can get cash bail and that he'll be out soon. As someone who's worked on international human rights issues myself, um, you might be surprised that I asked this question, but I think it's important. Like, why should Americans be concerned about these massacres happening in Nigeria? It's a good question. And the fact is that Americans have to be concerned about about terrorism in other countries that will come here. And Stephen Inada of the International Committee on Nigeria has said dozens of times that what happens in Nigeria doesn't stay there. It's going to come here to this country. Remember the shoe bomber of about 10 years ago? Uh, the, guy, the shoe bomber was a Nigerian guy he tried to blow up an airplane by putting explosives in his shoes, right? There are many terrorists uh, who've come from the Middle East and have done attacks or they have planned attacks in this country. They've had quite a few massacres by Middle Eastern people who happen to be in the United States, right? So if we allow the Islamic State, Islamic State in West Africa to bloom and become a caliphate, which is possible, then the, it will become a state where terrorism is funded and it will go all over the world. That's what happened when ISIS was in northern Syria and Iraq. So terrorism can come here. The other reason we we have to be concerned is that Nigeria is the dominant state in West Africa. And what happens there easily influences the surrounding states. So if the government of Muhammadu Buhari becomes an authoritarian Islamic state or an Islamist kind of state, not an ally with the United States, which on paper it is an ally, but if it becomes a country that's hostile to the United States, its government and its culture will influence the surrounding republics of Republic of Niger, of Benin, of Mali, of Chad. Uh, Ten states could follow suit. So that's one reason to be concerned. And then the other reason is that Americans are basically a moral people. Their national tradition is to be concerned about human rights abuses. And this is a massive one. Doug, you have a pretty fascinating to me perspective on how uh, these terrorist and bandit groups originate. Tell me about that. Here's how I got really interested in Nigeria. After I got back to the United States, you know, and I started really studying ISIS, I found out about its origins. ISIS started in 2012 in northern Syria, and it started as a criminal group. They were radical guys. They were terrorists who had come from al-Qaeda in Iraq. 
and they were in shelters in northern Syria, and they began making money. Every terrorist group starts as a criminal group. So their money-making means was kidnap for ransom, extortion, and theft. As we studied ISIS in Iraq, and ISIS in Iraq performed dozens of types of theft, including large-scale theft of oil and gasoline and all kinds of things. What you realize is that all these is radical groups, and this goes back to the Red Army, all radicalized groups begin as criminal groups. Crime of all kinds is at the center of what they do, and their radicalism justifies it. So when I started looking at Boko Haram, I saw the same thing, kidnap for ransom, sex slavery, for example, extortion, intimidation. Kidnap for ransom was the main thing ISIS did in Iraq. That was their chief moneymaker, and they're still doing it. Hmm. Okay. People don't realize that the key to understanding ISIS is its is business model. Radicalism, terrorism, is a kind of business. So when I looked at West Africa, I saw the same business. And that is how you can understand the connection between the herdsmen groups and the Al-Qaeda groups like Ansaru. I did the first story that explained, that revealed that Ansaru had reemerged in the Northwest. And how did it manifest itself? It's a big kidnapping gang. And it, has, it operates out of the forest just west of Kaduna City. There's huge kidnapping there. And that's how you can understand how all the groups relate. They all have the same business model. Their radicalism gives them an ideological justification for doing any kind of crime. Fascinating. Yeah. Look at it through the lens of who benefits. Now, that's how the terrorists benefit. Now, look at it the other way. How does the government ben benefit? Well, that's easy. And your friend Batya Ungarn Sargon explained this very well. There's a moral crisis. There's a moral panic in this country. And why is it? Because there, ha there is need to consolidate uh, consensus about what is wrong with our country. Why? Because once you have this consolidation, or you have a consensus about what's wrong, it empowers the people in power. The government elites, the political class, it empowers them to take action, which means grabbing more power. That's exactly what's happening in Nigeria. The political class in Nigeria is comprised of people in both major parties. There's just two parties, the PDP and the APC. And they win power no matter who wins the election. And no matter who wins, the government gets bigger and stronger. For example, let me explain it this way. The, the government has a big budget for military. You know, they got Navy, Army, Air Force. It's over $20 billion, the equivalent of two, 20 billion U.S. dollars is spent every year to contain the insurgency in Iraq. I mean, not in Iraq, but you know, in Nigeria. So the more violence there is, the more they have a case that they need more weapons. Oh, they need aircraft from the United States and they need explosives and the, they need uh, expertise. And so they spend money on all these things and there's huge corruption and graft. So a lot of this money that goes into the armaments, it's actually siphoned off by the officials, just like every part of their government. And I'm not the only person who's saying this. You look at other sources, they'll tell you that Nigeria is one of the most corrupt countries in the, in the world. So that is how the government benefits and gains by having insurgencies. Now, how do they benefit from the other conflict, the herdsmen gangs? Well, the herdsmen and the, the bandits who are doing the kidnapping, they happen to be radicalized Muslims. And the government itself, centered around Muhammad Buhari, just happens to be uh, leaning toward Islamic fundamentalism. So some of the Salafists are actually in his cabinet, not all of them. 
Some of the people are Christian, but he is former herdsman himself, and he's very closely connected to the Cattlemen's Association. The people who are doing the killing bring in revenue, and some of it undoubtedly goes to these lobbying groups and these political groups, the, the so-called Cattlemen's Association. You know, they, they have another name for it, but that's what it is. So they are becoming, they are getting wealthy. And I got insight from a London-based military analyst, Mr. David Otto. He was a consultant to the army in Nigeria, and he, he travels to West Africa frequently. And he said, the army in Nigeria never wins the war, and it's not really trying to win the war. It's managing the war. You have to understand the difference. Managing means you keep the spigot going of funding for your government, right? Now, here's the question we have. It is a fact that the government of Nigeria has made progress pushing Boko Haram back. In fact, Boko Haram is over. The new group is called Islamic State of West Africa, and they have won military victories. But the government has not made much progress in pushing back the kidnapping gangs and the mercenaries who have cleansed and 380 towns and villages in the Middle Belt. 380 towns and villages have been wiped away of Christian settlers, and they have been uh, renamed, many of them have been renamed, and the Muslim people, either Fulani or Northern Hausa, have occupied those towns and villages. Well, what has the government done to stop that? The answer is nothing. They don't arrest any of these people. They don't, they don't do any prosecutions. Uh, they keep explaining and, and repeating that, oh yeah, we're going to get to the bottom of this, we're going to make arrests, but they never do. They, they don't stop it because they have no incentive to stop it. They are benefiting from it. And so wait, so you're saying like literally there's no prosecutions, nothing. This I'm is, saying this is what you're no, saying. There are no prosecutions of the terrorists who come out of these Fulani bandit gangs. If there is one, show me it. And so, even the, the, the Nigerian media itself doesn't say this because it's politically incorrect. Uh, it's like my, you know, my, my friends in the journalist community, the Nigerian Union of Journalists, the NUJ, have told me, well, we just can't say that because all of, all of the newspapers, they depend upon government patronage advertising or supports. I know many of them are bribed, actually. Bribery is very common in Nigeria. Um, even our little group run by Lawrence Ongo, they had to bribe people to come to their press conference on October 15th. They had to bribe, they had to bribe the military police to come. I mean, the, the secret police came and they expected to be paid just to come to the press conference. That shows you how weird it is. So there is, there is corruption. And uh, the journalists in Nigeria, they don't make much money. Uh, good jobs are hard to get. So if you get a government job, you want to keep it. If you get a job in media, it's people I know love to do journalism. That's why I chose to do it in the mid-70s. So they are subject to coercion you know, by the government uh, and subject to in inducements like payoffs. And Luca Biniat just decided he was not going to be one of those persons. Luca doesn't make much money since he got jailed four years ago, he hasn't been able to get a regular job in journalism. So he, he works as a media coordinator for the uh, Christian group, the Southern Kaduna People's Union. So, you know, this is what you're describing here is a situation where, you know, people almost literally are taking their lives into their own hands to do the kind of work 
that our journalists have been doing. I mean, and that, I, I don't know if that, that may be lost on some people. It is hard to believe because it seems so far away. As you've pointed out, it's complex. It's hard to grasp. That's why I feel really driven to help Luca and Lawrence Sango and other reporters get the word out. It's not surprising in a way that Luca is getting in trouble again because he's done a lot of good. He's actually exposed the government's Orwellian language and he's exposed their, what I would say, false narrative. You know, this raises another question. Why did they do it? The government knew that Luca is a widely known dissident journalist and they knew that if they prosecuted him, it was going to cause international embarrassment. But why did they do it? Well, they did it, I think, I would just argue, because they needed to shut him up. I'm going to read a quote that you gave to Lara Logan um, in this really excellent documentary that she made actually based on the reporting of our journalists, uh, in significant part at least. You, you said, in order to get it, this is right at the end. Yeah, I kind of caught, you catch it right at the end. In order to get a solution, we need to listen to the victims themselves. So from the beginning, uh, I talked to the victims. And that's why Lawrence Sango was so helpful. Lawrence Sango has, before I started working with him, he had a job taking photographs of the corpses of people who had been murdered. And he had a lot of work to do. Now, you, you have to take pictures quickly because in Nigeria, they, they have a tradition of burying people within 24 hours of death. So Lawrence had to go to the scene where the corpses were available before they put, were put into the ground. And he was documenting that for a nonprofit organization. So Lawrence has seen a lot of this. And uh, I think Lawrence has probably suffered post-traumatic stress syndrome, possibly because of this. We started by getting the testimonies of the victims. And that is why I've encouraged other journalists to get in touch with the people on the ground who are the victims, like, or talk to the people who are the witnesses, like the Catholic priest or the pastors who have to bury these people. You know, one of my first stories was... Uh, in 2019, I didn't have many contacts, but a friend gave me the telephone number of a Roman Catholic priest in the northeast of Nigeria, Father uh, Lawrence Ike. And he was in this parish, he said, where he said when he came there a couple of years ago, it seemed like it was a graveyard because so many people had been killed. And I was really moved to hear him talk about this because I realized this man's all alone. He's got a little, he's got a little, uh, you know, he's got a little parish house there, you know, and he doesn't have any security. He doesn't, I mean, he cannot really escape if he gets attacked. So I prayed with him uh, by my cell phone and he was really moved by it. And then a week later, his fellow priest called me because E.K. had given my number out. And, the, and this young man said, uh, well, uh, Mr. Burton, we're under attack right now. I mean, the, I'm in the town of Michiga and we're standing on a hill. It's about 1030 at night, and we're watching the town burn down. Uh, the town's in flames, Boko Haram. The Boko Haram boys are going through town. I took the report down, and then the next day I sent it to the Washington Examiner, and they published it. And that's how I came to realize that a person who's never even been to Nigeria can get the story just with a cell phone. So I came to realize that Nigeria is not really 5,000 miles away. It's only a cell phone call away. And not only can journalists call, but any concerned citizen in the United States can have a direct relationship, a bond and a friendship 
with a person in these conflict zones. And if that would happen on a large scale, then even if the mainstream media isn't covering it, the story will get out because concerned citizens will get it out. So this is exactly what I wanted to talk to you about as we finish up here. Um, you know, there's plenty of viewers, I'm sure, who are interested in somehow helping, somehow supporting. And what you've just been describing is a really, really interesting way to do that. You know, we've had Tony Perkins mm -hmm. with USERF, the U.S. Commission on International Religious Freedom, come out and make a statement on this topic and reach out to his contacts in the area, from what I understand. But for people that are just out there thinking to themselves, what, what can we do? What is the next step for people? There's many things people can do. Uh, and the, the call to action has been made by eminent people, uh, writers like Bernard-Henri uh, Lévy, who said, there's so many things you can do. The U.S. Congress can put sanctions on the government of Nigeria and condition aid upon improvement in law enforcement. That's one thing. And so we could work through our elected representatives, especially the senators, because they control aid overseas. That's one thing. The other thing is that we can work through civil society groups to contact the churches uh, that are under attack in Nigeria. Now, Mr. Levy said at a press conference recently, and the story is up just today on the Epic Times, he said, if, if I were a member of one of these vibrant little churches, of which there are thousands in the United States, I would say, guys, let's get together and rebuild some of these churches. They've been burnt down. I mean, thousands of them. You know, there's one denomination in Nigeria you probably never heard of it, but it's a very, very popular denomination. It's called Ecumenical Church Winning All, and they have six congregations in the United States. But more than 1,100 churches belonging to the Ekwa group in Nigeria have been burnt down, totally destroyed. What if that had happened in the United States? That would be a huge story, but there, um, it's almost, I mean, no one writes about it right? We don't even keep records. So what is happening is that the churches are being ransacked, burnt, and people driven out, driven into internally displaced people's camps and so forth. No one's talking about it. So we can help through our churches. You know, Tony Perkins is a, he's an ordained minister. He's doing that. There are so many church groups that are, tr are, are trying to help somehow. But the other thing we can do is just as individuals. You know, I've always been I, I've always been a proponent of citizen-to-citizen -citizen diplomacy. I even tried to do this when I was with State Department in Iraq. I connected Boy Scout groups in the mid-states area of Washington area. I connected those uh, Boy Scout troops to the Boy Scout troops in Kirkuk, Iraq, and the Iraqis are so grateful. What I suggest is go around mainstream media and even go around mainstream nonprofits. If you can find a person in Nigeria in the conflict zones who's in harm's way, make that person your friend. Do what I did. Just make one person your friend and just talk to them, encourage them, take, their, take notes. If you want to give them money, do it. I, I send people money. When I'm not wealthy, but when I, you know, when I started, I, I started giving little uh, packets of money to my reporters because they needed it. If people want to help, if they want to make a donation, they can do it through a centralized group. The International Committee on Nigeria uh, is taking funds. It is a registered nonprofit, and they will accept donations. You can go to iconhelp.org, and they will transfer the donations to Lawrence Zongo's group, Rural Watch. You can do that. But I would say, you know, there's nothing wrong with making your own friend. Okay, you don't have to go through Icon. Find a friend. Look, there are 
millions of concerned citizens, many people of faith, of all kinds of backgrounds. I mean, Protestant, Catholic, Baha'i, I mean, and Muslim, and you know, all kinds of groups. Americans are great people. We have a tradition of caring about people in harm's way. I mean, that's why we rescued Korea in 1950. No country's done what, no country has done what we did in 1950, okay? So Americans can, can search their hearts after seeing me and seeing the evidence that's pretty evident. If you look on the internet, you'll, you'll see lots of documentation of the Christian genocide. Just ask yourself, you know, uh, what does my God in heaven want me to do? And if you make that prayer, God will guide you to someone in Nigeria who can use your help. Regardless of whether people are believers or not, this is a catastrophic situation. This is one of the, the worst human rights catastrophes in history. It's an embarrassment for the West that we're not looking at it clearly. And Bernard-Henri Lévy has done a new book, it's interesting, called The Will to See. And he points out that the West has seen many genocides happen and it didn't take note and get engaged, even though government officials knew in the beginning, but they didn't get engaged until after it was over. Like Rwanda, for example, in 1994. Genocides in the 20th century began with the Armenian gen genocide in, in uh, 1915. And more recent genocides have taken place in Rwanda, of course, in uh, Cambodia, uh, 1975, uh, in Sudan, uh, 2004. Uh, and, he, and he says the West has a chance now in Nigeria to recognize a genocide that's unfolding and to stop it. So in, in Nigeria, there is a chance that we can turn this off, and we should. Well, and this kind of highlights the bravery and the importance of the work that Luca and the other journalists that you're working with are doing. Doug Burton, it's such a pleasure to have you on the show. Really privileged to be here.